You are listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a Final Fantasy XIII series game club podcast. This is episode one, covering chapter one, and I am your host, Chris Taylor, and with me is... Bad Marcus. Graham Marcuson. So, we kind of started the show as a group effort. I started it because I talk about JRPGs a lot, and I conceptually like them, but usually hate their implementation, and Final Fantasy XIII is near the top of short like the short list of ones that I like. Uh, why are you guys on our on this podcast? Uh, basically the same reason. Because like me, I'm a big JRPG fan, but I recognize that there are a lot of in, like endemic problems with this genre. I wanted to start this podcast uh, in part because Final Fantasy XIII, it's considered a bit of an albatross for, for the series and for Square Enix specifically. And I think it got a little bit short shrift and I went to play it. For the first time, uh, I had been out of games for a while, and I I enjoyed myself, and I wanted to see if, on revisiting, whether or not the game holds up to my first impression of it, you know, several years later. And I also wanted a reason to play the the sequels, since I hadn't done that yet. Well, oh boy, are you going to play those? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I have feelings about both of them, and one of them I really like. How are you guys uh, with... Final Fantasy overall, uh, I went through a phase when I was younger where I played all of them and wasted a lot of time because most of them are just very average Japanese RPGs, but there are some good ones to recommend, like personally big fan of like Lightning Returns, 10 and 12, basically everything before 10 is dead to me. Really? <laughs> That's harsh. Interesting. <laughs> well, because then they turn into the kind of game where you just, I'm, I feel very bored buttoning through menus and nothing is challenging and it's just a time sink to see what's usually a mediocre at best story. Okay. My history with the series, I started with Final Fantasy VIII, which is a game that just seemed to have really imprinted itself upon me. Like, years and years later, for some reason, I just still feel very attached to that game, even though there are other games I played at that time, like Ocarina of Time, that hasn't quite stuck with me as much. I use uh, Squall as a handle a lot on the internet, and I even made a a wooden gun blade (laughs) as my fraternity paddle. And I, I should probably take a picture of it and send it for the show notes. What's that about? <laughs> uh, you know what? I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I did not paddle anybody with it, just for the record. We're not okay. We're not that kind of fraternity. Also, it's hopefully not also a gun. <laughs> no, it's it's wood. It's made of wood. A gun? No, it's, just, it's in the shape of <laughs> a... Right. It's not literally a blade, nor is it a gun. I'd hope not. But yeah, since then, I, I got really into RPGs in general and the Final Fantasy series, so I own pretty much one of everything in some format, and I've played most of them at this point. But 13 is probably the only second or third that I completed at the time I played it. Like I had dabbled, but never finished a bunch of them. So me, uh, it's my favorite franchise, you know. Uh, my start was Final Fantasy VI back in the Super Nintendo days, you know, I don't know why, but I just rented it from Blockbuster and I played it and I was so I was so blown away by it because it was probably the first time that I ever experienced a really serious story and like really anything. I don't even think I'd seen Forrest Gump yet, which was like really my first grown-up film. So it was like a real change of like what a video game could be and what a story could be. Since playing Final Fantasy VI, I moved on to like Final Fantasy IV pretty early on. You know, my early teens, I played four. Eight, then I moved on to seven and nine. I think over the years I went back to the Nintendo games, and then I also played like ten and ten two and twelve and all of them. So yeah, it's my favorite franchise. 
I've played every single single player one to completion, and I just really love this franchise, even though in recent years I don't think it's uh, been superb. Mm, well, I haven't, I haven't played 15 yet, because uh, yeah, right now I'm I. mostly playing things on... Yeah. I'm mostly playing things on PC, uh, this game included. Uh, what are you guys playing it on? PS3. PS3 as well. Okay, because I'm playing on the PC but version, there's a, a hilarious bug that, that uh, I found out about recently, which we'll get into when we don't have data logs for some of the enemies, <laughs> because uh, apparently it does not show up in the uh, enemy information screen if your resolution is set to a multiple of 1080. You just gotta set it to 1079 then. <sighs> I'm just gonna put it to 1440p. Uh <laughs> So generally what we're going to do with the show is we're going to go chapter by chapter uh, unless there are very long chapters or chapters are short. So like next episode is going to be two plus three, four is long enough to stand by its own. Uh, we're going to avoid quote unquote spoilers because there aren't really spoilers for a almost decade old game. But we're going to basically what that means is we're going to take not reveal information that we already know from later in the game until the game reveals it or hints mm-hmm. at it. Unless right. it's in a data log and then it's fair. And we don't have any because this is our first episode, but generally we'll take listener mail and responses at the end of the episode also. give a little bit of background on the Final Fantasy series. It is a uh, long-running turn-based JRPG series developed by Squaresoft, now Square Enix. It began back in 1987 and was the brainchild of Hironobu Sakaguchi. The series became known for pushing the limits of narrative storytelling for console games, and in particular, this uh, really blew up in the PS1 era because uh, the storytelling was enhanced with a focus on cutting-edge presentation with a prominent sci-fi aesthetic mixed with the D&D-influenced fantasy from the earlier games. Final Fantasy VII was the first game of this ilk, which became a massive breakout hit that changed the entire genre, particularly with regards to the use of computer graphic cutscenes to help tell the story. We're going to get back to Final Fantasy VII because it, in particular, casts a large shadow over thirteen. Definitely. Yeah, Final Fantasy Thirteen is Final Fantasy Seven. What in a different shape? Yeah, and in, in a lot of ways it is, and in some way, I mean, thematically, not quite as much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The game was first revealed at E3 2006 as a three-game suite called the Fabula Nova Crystallis. <laughs> I know it's such a go- it's a really goofy name. It's, it's like <laughs> that's a fake Latin, f- very goofy name. Yeah. It had three games in the in the trilogy, so to speak. It, Versus 13 was the second one, uh, which was later released as Final Fantasy 15, and Agito 13, which later got released as Type 0. And all of the games were, had a connected theme of characters fighting against their fate. The game was directed by uh, Motomu Toriyama. 13 was his second major directing project for the series after his directorial debut with Final Fantasy X-2 which was the first time there was a narrative direct sequel in the Final Fantasy series, because previously every Final Fantasy was an island. They all had separate continuities. But as we'll find, you know, the whole reason for this podcast is actually this particular 13 series has direct sequels as well. So I think that's important to note. 
The game was produced by Yoshinori Kitase, who directed Final Fantasies 6, 7, and 8, as well as uh, Chrono Trigger. The characters were designed by Tetsuya Nomura, and the music was written by Masashi Hamazu, which is notable because 13 is the first Final Fantasy to not include music written by uh, Nobuo Uematsu, who's a very famous uh, composer. And notably, it is not any worse for it. It's it's interesting. Like I, I I like the soundtrack. I think some of the music really does stick, you know, in my brain. But it seems like it's not quite as melodically strong as as Uematsu's work in, earlier in the series. Yeah, I think the music in general is like it's pretty great, but it's not to the level of like some of those classic Final Fantasy soundtracks, like six and seven. So 13 had a notorious troubled development. Uh, work actually started in 2004 on the PS2, and the game got pushed onto the next generation of consoles, PS3 and 360, for a couple of reasons. The first one being Final Fantasy 12 was uh, seriously delayed due to its own development problems. That game started development in 2000 and didn't end up shipping until 2006. So at that point, Final Fantasy 13 had been in pre-development for two years. Yeah, 12, they had they had that part where they basically said, we're going to make this entire game over again. Yeah, they, they pushed out, uh, was it Matsuno? Uh, he, he had to yeah. leave for health issues, quote-unquote, uh, and the game got retooled significantly. So, yeah, that game came out at the very end of the PS2's life cycle. Well, its main part of its life cycle, because the PS2 hung around for a long, long time. But also during that time that they were waiting for 12 to come out, Part of the 13 team was pulled off to work on a PS3 graphic demo to show off the PS4. This demo was aired at E3 2005, and it showed the intro cutscene of Final Fantasy VII in you know, HD graphics for the first time. And this had a huge positive reaction, which convinced Square to push the development of 13 to the next-gen consoles. So that's the first way in which Final Fantasy VII influenced 13. This caused a lot of problems. So for one thing, Square was developing the a new graphics engine called Crystal Tools alongside the development of the game. Uh, because Crystal Tools was intended to be the backbone of all of Square's projects across all different types of platforms, like it's the first time Final Fantasy was multi-platform, Square kept expanding the scope of Crystal Tools. And because of this, the early work on 13 was hampered due to the lack of final specs on the engine. Beyond that, 13 had the largest team for a Final Fantasy to date, which was over 200 people. And there was very poor communication between the different departments. The developers had mentioned that there was a lack of comprehensive vision that would tie the game elements together. And in fact, the game did not have a playable vertical slice until the team was tasked with creating a playable demo to be included in a 2009 Blu-ray release of Final Fantasy VII Advent Children Complete. The devs also called the demo the point at which the game really coalesced and development really started to move forward. But essentially, most of the game was put together in about 18 months leading up to its December 12, 2009 launch. And Nomura would state later that the game was rushed out the door in a semi-complete state. This was acutely felt with the English localization team because Square wanted the game to release simultaneously overseas. However, they were still editing the Japanese script while the English voice work was being recorded. So you can imagine how Mm. problematic that was. There are a lot of stories about what went wrong with 13's development, and I'm, I'm just trying to glean as just the surface of that. So you can imagine how bad it was on the ground level. Now, the reception of Final Fantasy 13 
was, well, it was positive, but there was so much backlash from the fans. There was a lot of media hype around the game at the time of release, but like people were disappointed. It, like, it wasn't the Final Fantasy VII remake that was teased at E3 presentation. It was missing some of the classic trappings of Final Fantasy, particularly the exploration of the world. That's one of the big complaints is that it does not feel like Final Fantasy. You know, the last Final Fantasy that came out before it, twelve, was very MMO-like. And a lot of the complaints that SE got during international playtesting just came too late in the development to make any of those changes. A lot of those changes and criticisms would carry over into the development of 13.2. The things that are criticized about it are probably the things that I like about it the most, which we'll talk about as we go through the game. Most certainly. I have I have mixed feelings about a lot of the changes that the franchise took with this edition, but like I try and open my mind and just like analyze this and think about like how it could expand Final Fantasy as like a franchise and it, like how it can expand the idea of a JRPG. I try and think about that. So let's get the game started. If you were like me and you went to open the manual to get a sense of what's actually going on, there is a prologue in the manual that spells out a lot of things that the early game doesn't. So I'm going to read it here. Cocoon, a utopia in the sky. Its inhabitants believed their world a paradise. Under the sanctum's rule, Cocoon had long known peace and prosperity. Mankind was blessed by its protectors, the benevolent Foul Sea, and believed that tranquil days would continue forever. Their tranquility was shattered with the discovery of one hostile Foul Sea. The moment that Foul Sea from Pulse, the feared and detested lower world, awoke from its slumber, peace on Cocoon came to an end. Falsi curse humans, turning them into magic-wielding servants. They become Lissi, chosen of the Falsi. Those branded with the mark of the Lissi carry the burden of either fulfilling their focus or facing a fate harsher than death itself. A prayer for redemption, a wish to protect the world, a promise to challenge destiny. After 13 days of fates intertwined, the battle begins. Opening cutscene, we see a bullet train going down the track. Figures are strapped into it, wearing white mage-like hooded robes. Lightning and Saz are sitting together. Uh, Lightning starts a breakout on the train, during which Saz mentions to a kid that he is, quote, not a lassie, which calms down the child. And a baby chocobo makes its first appearance, popping out from Saz's afro. Uh, We see an outside shot of this train as it goes from the exterior into a giant sphere, and we see what is Cocoon for the first time. The people who were previously shackled on the train start a revolt, gunfire ensues, and guards are seen using circular gates to summon monsters. Lightning was designed to be a female cloud, Cloud Strife being the main character of Final Fantasy VII, and I, I found it really interesting that on top of the fact that she is a cloud analog, that they start on a train like the beginning of, of Final Fantasy VII. And uh, also, like during that breakout, Lightning busts out some, some real Matrixy moves, which I, I thought were really cool. The whole thing looks a lot 
like Final Fantasy VII. Like, even some cinematography stuff where we see the train incoming and the camera flips is very Final Fantasy VII. And everything also has that very, uh... Ever since Final Fantasy VII, it's kind of like a square aesthetic of that, like, weird neon greeny industrial Mm -hmm. center. Mm -hmm. And you even hang out with Saz, who is your, uh... African-American friend who fights with guns. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Should so you got, you got yeah. Barrett, you got the cinematography, you have the color palette, you have the train. It is just the most Final Fantasy VII intro there has ever been since Final Fantasy VII. The one thing I do like about this is you actually get a little bit of character building before the intro is even done, which is unusual because you have to sit there and wait for a text dump for somebody to tell you who they are. You get the exchange between Lightning and Saz when the civilians uh, roll up in the train and Saz says they want to fight. And Lightning just says, good for you, basically, which is a very good indicator of how they are, where Saz wants to nurture everybody around him and Lightning just doesn't care and wants to get the thing done. It should be said that like there's a narration to this game and it's Vanille. Uh, we'll get to Vanille later. God help you with the character stuff for like the first two hours if you don't have subtitles on. Oh, yeah, yeah. You need you need the subtitles on. That's a pro move. And also also put on like the, if you're playing along, put on the uh, auto dialogue option so that you don't have to like mash X to get NPCs to talk to you. They'll just talk. It saves a lot of time. Now, the aesthetic of this game is a little busy, but I love it. It's like a really cool techno fantasy look. It's, it's very digital, very neon-y. It's close to Final Fantasy VII, but it's a little bit more futuristic, whereas Final Fantasy VII is very dirty and very uh, smelly. <laughs> I'm sure Vile Peak smells terrible. Oh, yeah. I like dirty sci-fi more than I like clean sci-fi every time. Space is dirty. Make it dirty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Moving on, this game has a problem with giving the player appropriate story information. Like, one of Saz's first lines is, I'm not a lessee. And we don't really know what a lessee is yet. Just the context of it doesn't help the player figure out what a lessee is. I think I like that, because I imagine the other version of this, where it's Final Fantasy IX, and I have to have hour, like hours of people explaining everything about the world, who they are, and what they do in the world before anything happens. I prefer that they give me the information where... These people are reassured by the fact that Saz is not a lessee. So all I need to know is that's a thing that people don't want him to be. He's not that. Let's move on and I'll figure it out later. There is a lack of information given, but overall, I think generally speaking, it helps the pace. You probably could have had a scene of of other characters, like the non-player people who are trapped in there, like saying something of like, is there a lessee there? Or, or they're looking for lessees or, you know, like they could have, set up a little something to be like, okay, people have talked about this and this guy says he's not that thing. But it's also like, there's nothing that Saz would have done, I don't think, that would have made him seem like a Lissie, as far as I could tell. Because I don't think he fights any, does he fight any of the uh, Psycom guys? No, he does not. No, he just kind of gets up. <laughs> I would be very scared if somebody stood up on the bus next to me. Yeah, and and like jumps on the ceiling and just shoots the driver. Oh no, I just meant in general, like says. I would find that frightening and need reassured they weren't a monster waiting. Now, they're on a train and they're being purged from Cocoon. Now, what I thought when I first played it is like, oh, they're they're getting taken to another country, like another nation. Like they're being expelled to Pulse and being that's a train I'd figure, like, hey, it's on, like, the same planet, when actually being purged from Cocoon to Pulse is, like, a 
interplanetary event, and that's kind of confusing. Is that the case? I have... Uh- I'm, well, in in play right now, I am up to the start of chapter seven. Is that the case where Pulse is a different planet, or isn't? Cocoon? Yeah, like Pulse is like Pulse is a big planet, and the cocoon's like a smaller moon-like planet hanging yeah. over Pulse. Yeah, they describe it as planetoid, I think, in a data log or or, or at least in the talk about. It. Yeah, so it's which I I'm just very curious about because like I wonder if that affects you know tides and and all sorts of like gravitational yeah. problems because you have this you know big sphere just floating around this this ostensibly Earth-like planet. Balsy got it covered. Yeah. <laughs> that creates a lot of logistical questions for me all of the sudden. Right, because, you know, at the time we, we spend a cocoon, we see a whole lot of, of different areas, and you you have to, like, remind yourself, like, they're in a giant sphere this entire early part of the game. They're in the hollow moon now. <laughs> exactly. It's like, so, you're like the iron skies. It's like a snow globe. Yeah, when I first played, I was really confused by it. It took me a while to figure out, oh, Cocoon is a hollow moon. Okay, let's move on, though. Um, <laughs> we could go on about this for a while. Yeah, so after the intro ends, we get our first battle. Since the game doles out mechanics slowly over time, it makes sense to discuss the mechanics as they get added. We start the fight with a Modest Finn war mech. Like, right at this first battle, the combat mechanics are very simplified. Uh, Lightning uses a gun blade, which is an actual gun blade, compared to like Squall's gun blade, which is like, it has a revolver barrel on it, but it's not actually a gun. It's just a blade. The sword part is uh, very good. It's like a switchblade that folds out of the gun. It has an incredibly good sound and animation when it opens and closes. It's like very good audio work. Yeah. I love the return of the gun blade. As a big Final Fantasy VIII fanboy, I, I love the Gunblade, even though the original Gunblades were really stupid. There's a whole lot of action going on in these battles. It's very kinetic. We'll see other people's weapons transform as they use them, but Lightning's in particular feels really good, and her animation's really good. The battle mechanics in Final Fantasy XIII are designed around a very cinematic combat experience. In battles, the player only has direct control over a single leader character. You give direction to that character using a new evolution of the classic Final Fantasy ATB system. Your character has like an ATB meter that fills over time like you do, but unlike previous entries, the ATB gauge is divided into segments, like action points, and as you select actions, each of those actions takes a certain number of segments to execute. Like regular fighting just takes one ATB, some special moves take two, some very special moves take three and more. Moves can be selected manually, and you can use the repeat option. Right, so if you queued up a bunch of actions that you want to do again, you could instead of selecting them each time, you just go down to the abilities section of the menu and you press over to the right and it says repeat. Yeah. But what this game encourages you to do is select Auto Battle, which will automatically select actions that consumed your full ATB meter. Right. Unlike previous games in the series, you don't have to wait for the ATB meter to fill up completely before acting. You can press triangle once you have enough meter to perform at least one action. This is useful at the end of a battle with an enemy at low health so that you can go ahead and kill them and not wait for three other attacks that you won't need But this is also important because actions can be interrupted in various ways, making timing very important. This interruption feeds into this new stagger system as well. Should 
the player's character get knocked out, the battle ends. Should the player lose, you can return to your last save point or just restart the battle from the beginning, fully healing the party and returning used items. A retry can also be manually initiated from the pause menu. And the the retry thing is a very player-friendly thing. It, It really helps allow you to experiment more or just know that if you fail, you're not going to lose like two hours of progress if you haven't saved. Well, it also functions as a flea that just always works. Uh, It rewinds you a little back if when you're uh, controlling the characters in the field, it rewinds you a little back before you enter there at the enemy's area of detection. So should you go into a fight, you should not be in. You can just basically use that as a rewind and then just skirt around. After the battle, you see a victory screen, which displays some battle statistics like how long you took, a target time for that set of enemies, CP earned, which you don't get right now, but we'll get later, items dropped by enemies, and a 1-5 to star score for your battle performance. Enemy drops can be improved by getting a high battle rating, which is determined by how fast you complete the battle compared to the target time. Uh, you can get more time for battles by via an initiative bonus. Like if you ambush an enemy, you sneak up on them. It raises your target time, which makes getting a higher battle rating much easier. And after every battle, your party is fully healed and cured of all status effects. And interestingly enough, they don't play the Final Fantasy uh, battle victory fanfare that that had been used for the last several games. There is one, just not in the entirety of Chapter 1 for some reason. Right, no, there is a there is a victory fanfare, uh, but it's not like the yeah yeah it's not the classic. It's a new one. Uh, one of the big things about battles is that after battle, you are healed completely. That's really different compared to like so many other JRPG systems that you know you carry your damage and your ailments beyond battle. And I think that in this case, it's a good design decision. I like it in this. I don't know if I'd want that for every RPG. For like a very user-friendly, puzzly JRPG system like this one, it works really good. I definitely like that. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because what I end up doing a lot when I play a game or an RPG is if I take notable a notable amount of damage almost after every battle, I will go into the menu and heal back up more or less to full and then keep going. It just really kills the pacing. This basically changes the the mechanic a little bit so that you, you don't end up into one of those scenarios where you're dragging along and you're running out of healing and, and you're just wait, you know hoping for that next save point. It removes that tension, but it, it makes the encounters more... More self-contained. Yeah. I don't like how the party leader dying leads the game over, nor do I like the inability to switch between party members, but I kind of figure that'd be like really hard to program or something. It doesn't feel like that was like a gameplay decision that the developers made. The party member switching is a user interface challenge because later on down the road when you get paradigms and the ability to customize your paradigm deck, say you switch out a character who has commando and switch in a character who doesn't have commando, suddenly every paradigm with commando in it is invalidated. Right, but even so, it's not like if you're playing Saz and Saz gets knocked out, you can switch to Lightning who's already in the battle. Yeah, I think that's that's more of the thing, which is what happens in Final Fantasy 12. If you're playing Final Fantasy 12 and your controlling character dies or gets knocked out, the game pauses and allows you to pick the next character to control. That game has the most depressing feeling party wipes as a result of that. By <laughs> yeah, the way. It really, just it really one does. at it's a just... time going down. 
And even more, like if you sub in somebody from your bench and then they die immediately because they're not ready to fight. And oh God, I uh, it's about just that. a death spiral. You got the A team and you get all the level ones yeah. who just want to use the potion as fast as possible. Interestingly enough, Toriyama said that they designed the battle system to feel like the fights in Advent Children. Have you guys seen Advent Children? Yeah, I've seen Advent Children. Unfortunately, I have seen Advent Children. I have not, so I I probably should at some point. Because I, I hear it's ridiculous. Uh, hmm? <laughs> I don't know. I, you could watch it, and you could probably be entertained. It's got cool action. It. It's got, like, and I know what they're trying to do with, like, Final Fantasy XIII's battles, trying to emulate Advent Children. I don't think they're completely successful, but I think that they gave it a decent shot. I was just going to say that, like, part of the way that this affected the system was we don't have mana points. We don't have to worry about costs for magic other than the ATB cost. Yeah. Oh, dude, I think that's very great. Because what happens is when you wind up having, when you're not getting healed after battle, or you have magic points, think of like your Persona 4s or any other JRPG, battles yep. and dungeons effectively only exist as a drain on your cumulative resources to see if you've acquired enough numbers across a set of pools to clear this stretch before you can refill all your numbers. And I prefer that doesn't... Or, or that you understood what the challenge was. Right. Because if you're not fumbling around being inefficient, then yeah. you're going to run out of run out of SP or whatever. And I like that because you lead to... It leads to every individual encounter is more challenging and more interesting. And there are less of them because the goal is not to just run all your numbers down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, not, very few of these feel like chaff encounters. Like every now and then you'll be like, okay, I, yeah. I fought these two or three Psycom guys together. This isn't really that different. But for the most part, every encounter and every way they mix up the encounters feels somewhat significant. With the exception of this entire chapter. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. None of, none of that happens here. <laughs> this is all just 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 mash the A button or X button or whatever your con- confirm button is. All right, yeah. Speaking of battles, now, um, for the first part, you only control Lightning, who has two attacks, uh, two actions available a basic attack that consumes one ATB element and blitz, which is like a like an area of attack. And that's important when you're fighting like two or more enemies in a group. The blitz, of course, requires two ATB segments, whereas the basic attack only costs one. The fight with Manasvin Warmech is pretty basic because the Manasvin Warmech only has one attack and after a short cutscene beating it the first time, the Warmech grabs the train and shakes it. Lightning and Zaz lie down, and the battle resumes with the enemy getting a beam attack called Wave Cannon. Now, you can actually lose this second round, because that Wave Cannon is very dangerous. And uh, it's worth noting that given that you're likely to need a potion here, that item usage consumes no meter. It doesn't require any ATB segment. It's instant, and it's free, aside from using up the item. The potions affect the whole party. You just select potion on the item menu, and everyone is affected by that potion. Way into that. Yeah. It doesn't apply to all items, but at least for potions, it, it does. Less bookkeeping and less menu fiddling, the better. Which is really important with this with this timing and, and speed-based system. You know, I think my biggest problem with this system is the anxiety you get trying to, to pick your actions as fast as possible. And items is probably one of the situations where that comes up a lot because you're just digging for, you know, right now it's just potions, so it's not a problem. But once you have 
a whole bunch of items and you're trying to find that one status effect curing item, it can be I, like I will panic and hit the wrong thing. I basically never use items in this game ever as, as a result of that. Uh, honestly, if mm-hmm. there was like like I could hit both shoulder buttons and Libra would be cast, I would probably never touch a menu in this game that wasn't the paradigm menu. Yeah, the very first fight is prescribed at you to like teach you the basic rhythm of battles and how to navigate the menus. Uh, like the second round, okay, the first round is pretty easy and not very dangerous, but the second round is like basically a race to kill each other because like that foe, Monospin Warmech, is going to do serious damage with a wave cannon ability. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Saz could probably kill the first half of the fight if you didn't do anything at all. Okay, uh, like after battle, uh, Zaz mentions the Sanctum and Purge. The game throws a lot of terms and names at you very quickly, with explaining them half decently at best. The game uses the proper techniques into introducing the player to this alien, fantastical world, but it doesn't do it in an effective order. It basically just comes down to like the skill of the storytellers and how they introduce the myriad of concept and characters that you know surround this world. Contrast to something like Final Fantasy X which had a protagonist that wasn't from that world. That protagonist wasn't from the Spira that the player gets to know. So that protagonist needed to be explained everything, and therefore the player got explained everything. Yeah, it's a real classic narrative trope. They, they avoid the as-you-know thing, which is a, a bit of a pet yeah. peeve. Like, once somebody pointed that out to me, I'm like, oh, yeah, they shouldn't ever, no one ever says that <laughs> in real life. As you know, is half a step up from Metal Gear, and Final Fantasy XIII is like maybe a step above that. Yeah. Oh, God, Metal Gear. Uh, anyway, after the battle, you go into field mode. This is when you're walking around environments and seeing the enemies and interacting with things. And once you run into the enemy, you go into battle. This is basically where the real giant hallway starts. Like the biggest criticism about this game is that it's extremely linear for mm-hmm. a good portion of it. And really pretty much all of it. There's really I, I think the back half is is not that, you know, after you get past chapter eleven, it, it, it narrows down again. I love the hallway. Yeah. I mean, if you look at there's a mini map in your upper right corner, and if you keep your eye on the mini map, it basically strips away the artifice of of all of the art that's happening, you know, rendered in the world. And it makes things look really, really narrow. And for a lot of people, that was really frustrating. But anyway, as you're you know walking around, uh, enemies are in the world walking around, and you can actually count them. It's very rare that an enemy comes out of nowhere and surprises you. So before just about every encounter, you can size up the enemy that that you're going to fight. You're, you're going from A to B, and every once in a while, you'll see the path diverge a little bit. The only thing that tends to be at the end of those little you know, diversions are these little bouncing item balls. Yeah. That's the only reason they make a good sound. Yeah. They, they make a good sound and they stop, you know, I like that they move so that it catches your eye. If you're, if it's like, you know, off in the distance somewhere, but, and they stop moving once you take the item out, but I'm not sure why they're there. <laughs> it like, it's not like a treasure chest or anything. It's just, there's just these item balls bouncing around. Yeah. It's not explained at all. No, yeah, like at least the save points. Um, you also see save points uh, as you're walking around this game. Use the save points. I think those they try to like half build that into the fiction, 
like they have tried to make it diegetic because it's this floating, you know, circling icon. And as you go to it, it unfolds and you see a bunch of uh, like hologram image screens and a little keyboard. This is where you're going to save. This is where you're going to shop. All shops are done through save points. Uh, Your weapons upgrades will go through this menu. The second big criticism besides the linearity of the game was that there are no towns or areas to explore that felt habitated or had other things going around other than just going from A to B. And instead of having a town where you go to the blacksmith and you buy new weapons or what have you, like you'd see in other games, you just buy it through this menu. Mm -hmm. For me personally, uh, I don't don't mind the save point thing, but in terms of the shopping, it it feels like a bit of a Band-Aid for gameplay purposes. And they're very frequent. There's there's a ton of save points in this game. Like there'll be like two, three encounters, and then there's a save point. Yeah. I don't know. Like it just feels like I don't know why there are so many. You could probably skip every other one for most of the game and not feel like you've overextended yourself. In in part because you can restart if you die. You don't really lose anything. Yeah, that's true. Like it's very easy to get like addicted to like resetting in battle if it doesn't go your way. I mean, that's the problem that I kind of have is that like, oh man, a character died. I'll reset my battle now. Now, the camera is very weird in this game. It sways and it drifts a little bit when you're turning. I think they're trying to make it like very natural and cinematic, like someone was actually holding the camera, but I don't know if I like it. At the same time, it's not really a big problem because like this isn't an action game. All the, the, all the action you're doing is just running into enemies, so it's not a big problem, but it is kind of weird. It is a little weird that it has momentum. It's not like it's not like actual analog movement. Like you touch the stick and then the camera continues further than it should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I, I, overall, it's fine. It pro- it's probably fine until you touch it and then it's just off the whole time because they never course correct it back to the scripted camera motions, which is I think what you're detecting when you say it feels weird. Right, and you have to swing the camera around to find some of those items because, like. You know, there's just one spot where you, you know, what they'll do is you'll go around, uh, you know, a set of boxes or something. And if you swing the camera around behind you, then you'll see the bouncing item ball. Yeah, uh, item balls are only in two places. They're four feet off the path or when you go around a direct corner where the camera is not showing you what was immediately behind you. There's one there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like what Dark Souls does sometimes where it's just like there's a little soul item tucked behind every uh, every staircase. Yep. Yep. Speak, speaking of items, uh, we, we finished our first battle. A data log uh, fills in the backstory, and this fills in very quickly. Don't be on top of it for like 30 minutes, and you'll have like 40 blinking exclamation marks. But in our inventory right now, we have the Gravcon, which uses the AMP, or Antimatter Manipulation Principle. This is the thing that we saw used in the cutscene for jumping off of dudes and basically free-flying through the air. It kind of blends in okay, where all magic is technology and vice versa, and human beings cannot naturally use it, so they use the the amp in forms of, like, mana drives in general, and you have a knife that uh, becomes plot-relevant later. The interesting thing with the way the narrative of this sets up, the data log will update extremely frequently. Pretty much after every minor plot beat in in the play, you'll see a little flash data log updated. It's a little red flash. I think it's up in the top left corner. Yep. And as I've been playing this, I've been checking it every time that happens because descriptions will change for certain things uh, as stuff gets revealed to you. So 
right now the survival knife doesn't really have anything explained. It's just it's a it's a big knife. But if you were to check it in your inventory later, it'll say something else. Like right now, the dialogue basically lays out the plot. The pulse falci becomes active in Bodum. It triggers a purge or relocation of Cocoon. Cocoon was built by a group of falci, allowed humans to create a society and run it. The current leader of Cocoon is Primarch Gallanth Dicely. War of transgression long ago triggered between Pulse and Cocoon. Cocoon's shell was damaged in the fight, but Cocoon survived. And you see this whenever you see like a nice big shot of Cocoon. You see like it's like a big ball with a, a big hole in it. I forget if you can see it in the in the logo. Cocoon is there, but I don't know if you can see the crack. Uh, yeah, I think so. You can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. I was going to say a minor Final Fantasy trope. The logo for every Final Fantasy shows a very plot important thing with it. That's like very stylized. And for for this particular one, if you look at the Final Fantasy logo, you see a big sphere, and a couple of of you know, it looks like women, a couple. of people around it and then like a lot of like things flying around around you know but that's yeah a lot of like waves and uh, spikes and like stuff it's it's pretty it's like a big logo too it's a big gradient design mm-hmm. behind the mm-hmm. like the title yeah now there's a lot of paranoia around people who are tainted by contact with the pulse foul sea pulse foul sea and the pulse sea are enemies of cocoon says the data log and Falci are basically gods who use magic. Every single character will say enemies of Cocoon at some oh point. <laughs> it's one of the weaker points of the script is that there are certain lines that just get repeated and repeated. And enemies of Cocoon is, is one that you have to watch out for. Uh, at this point, uh, Saz mentions, uh, I don't want to be sent to Pulse. Uh, and mentions the Pulse Falci, which if you're not reading Datalogs, it's the first time you'll hear these terms. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Zaz mentions the Falci, but the player doesn't know yet what a Falci is, and they aren't really given a good reference that explains it. That's sort of a problem in these opening moments, is that keep on hearing about Falci, but we're not given a great explanation. A lot of these battles that Lightning and Zaz go through are mindlessly easy. Like, they're basically just press X to win, which, you know, that's kind of a... Uh, kind of a thing with these automatic battles is that you just keep on pressing the auto battle and you win. Later on, there's one that's like a Psycom Warden and two Pantherons. It's an easy battle to get your first stagger on. Now, right now, you don't get any experience or, well, later on, we'll talk about it, but we, you don't get anything but items for uh, beating these battles. Uh, they definitely could have made them all the same thing. The They tried a little bit, at least. There's a, a little bit of enemy diversity that's not necessarily important, but it's noticeable and makes the battles feel a little different, right? Yeah, definitely. You have Psycom Wardens with the guns, and they say, since they're ranged, like your party members who are ranged, they hang back and tend to cluster up, so you get good blitzes out of them. Uh, you have the melee guys that jump forward, so if you're going to use your blitz, you have to like time it either to after they attack. And uh, they're the dogs, the pantherans, which uh, are very easy. Uh, they do have a lot of hit points, though, but stagger easy. So it just it gives you the impression that they have a ton of HP, but you get through them about the same rate. It's just that you get through them slightly differently. So even though you're not doing anything different, there's at least like visual and slight timing variety early on. 
I don't know if this is a good time to bring this up, but what, how do you guys feel about the, the field of play during battles? Just the idea that you want to target clusters if you're doing an AoE attack for sure, but there, there seems to be an element of that. It just feels kind of RNG-like. Things will move around, and sometimes like you'll be targeting a guy, and you, you know you have to keep hitting him to kill it first, but then you know, you're not getting the bonus of hitting multiple enemies at once. Uh, it depends. It's it's less great early. You have more control over it later due to party composition. When you can mm-hmm. swap out your party, right? Like, uh, like we'll talk about later. Not a big fan of Saz because he's a ranged character, and ranged characters not very good in this game. But uh, I think it's it's okay here. Uh, it does lead to you not necessarily getting optimal plays, but it you can definitely. Uh, avoid getting absolutely obliterated later on just if you hit say attack somebody else early on and you're out of position for a big aoe and your party leader survives so you can definitely win or lose on it it's not a big of a deal in 13 as it is in like lightning returns where positioning on the battle is like very important and you have explicit control of like walking and running around in it yeah that makes a lot more sense Anyway, th- this area uh, is called the the Hanging Edge. Uh, it's described as uh, the outskirts of Cocoon, heading towards towards Pulse. And I don't believe it's mentioned here, but there, there are sections of of Cocoon that are uninhabited, basically tainted. Yeah, they were they were tainted by the the War of Transgression, and you know we'll we'll get into more. There are areas where that's more apparent, but the Hanging Edge is is on its way to those areas. Uh, but while the the two of them are traversing down uh, the hanging edge, Lightning and Saz see a behemoth trample a group of soldiers. The behemoth re- looks really cool. That's all I say. <laughs> well, well, we'll fight one eventually. But I I think its design yeah, it's is pretty early. You fight the behemoth. It's just cool though. Like you know, in this game, you see and fight a behemoth so early. Whereas in other Final Fantasies, behemoth is usually like a late game enemy. Mm-hmm. And they they do some twists on it too. Uh, which we'll get to like, you know, like ten episodes in. Yeah, um, definitely yeah. like, definitely like ten episodes in. <laughs> uh, so there's a cutscene where Lightning and Saz come across uh, a couple of soldiers. She says preemptive strike, and then goes on and does a normal <laughs> battle. <laughs> yeah, like preemptive strikes are a thing in this game, uh, but that isn't one of them. And like, it's not, there's nothing preemptive about it. She just sees them and says it. Like, you're not getting the up on anyone, Lightning, if you just say that. Right, and also, like, these these guys are patrolling, their vision's pretty good, and there's an explicit, like, tutorial for preemptive yeah. strikes next chapter. So I don't know why this is weird. The reason it's weird is that if you don't charge in immediately, which you're going to because your character just suggested a preemptive strike, Saz runs by you and bumps a crate, which is what makes them turn and look at you. Oh, okay. Really? They they noticed that? I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah, it makes a sound, and that's when they turn around, which is why you can never get a preemptive strike. That's funny because I mean, usually the you know your party members that are that you're not controlling, they're running around on the field of battle, but the enemies usually do nothing about it. They're just kind of right. They're, they're right. They're not. trying to set Saz up as like a bumbler, which he definitely is early on. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's pretty funny little section right there. Uh, speaking of Saz being a, a bumbler, uh, Lightning does have that mana drive gravity controller thing that she uses to uh, 
jump incredibly far. They jump across this bridge onto a gap. Uh, it's it, it's well, it's not not a gap. It's like 40, 50 feet straight down over a huge pit. Yeah. And she jumps down. It uses mm-hmm. this magic thing. She lands and then says immediately just breaks it right after he jumps. Well, actually, if I recall, what happens is he lands. There's like a residual spot where she, where lightning lands that still has Gravcon stuff happening and he lands on it. Yeah, that's later though. Like right that's now, later. I think if I remember correctly, like lightning's about to like jump somewhere, so she activates it. She activates it and she starts floating up and you know, Zaz is like, "No, don't leave me." And then he climbs on her and it breaks. Yeah, that, it breaks. that's that's later. Yeah, that that's the second scene. This is the first the the first scene he he goes to follow her. He slips off and like pancakes. He would have pancaked right on the ground, but happened to hit this like, you know, 3-foot radius space. There's no yeah. other time during the game where a Gravcon thing like just hangs around like that. So I don't. It's just kind of funny. They become wussy, so they can just jump wherever, and it's fine. They actually use Gravcon grenades in a later scene. Like that's a pretty notable scene. So like, it's not like once you become wussy, they have control over gravity or anything. They're still yeah. they would still die if they fall a long way. Now in field mode, you you can't really go up to NPCs and talk to them, but they do say things. It's a really good use of like voiceover because instead of having to walk up to an NPC and uh, talk to them and get like a text box, they'll just say it out loud. And it's just you know, it's just a good, it's good use for time. Yeah, I appreciate that. If they're not going to say anything important to me, don't make me push a button to not hear anything (laughs) important. Yeah, well, party members will talk too, and uh, it's interesting that they're all of their banter. It's not generic; it, it changes with every every chapter. The 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 banter dialogue. Mm-hmm. So, like, there are some things like if you, if you're not checking the the data log religiously, they'll drop mentions of things that don't get mentioned otherwise. You know, while you're running around in field mode, there are some timing problems with this. Like, you could open a menu right as they they start talking, like they start talking as you're opening a menu and it cancels it and you never hear it again. Uh, same thing with like, mm-hmm. it's not timed right. Like the spaces between battles aren't big enough for the character to say the thing. And then you also cancel that too. So if it's multi-line, you can just, you can lose out on some of that. I also, I often just find myself standing around while they're talking. Oh yeah. So after we, after we jump down, we jump down our gap and uh, we get into a battle with a Psycom Marauder who's like a very heavily armored guy with like, is it a jet pack, jet boots? He moves real fast and fire comes out from somewhere behind him. And this is our tutorial on the stagger meter. You have Saz and uh, Lightning, right? And attacking increases uh, uh, the meter in the top right called the chain gauge. When you max it out, the enemy is put into a staggered status. Uh, the bar starts flashing yellow and the enemy starts taking significantly more damage. So like the percentage as you're building it up might be like 110. But when you stagger them, it's 250 and you're dealing more than double damage. Uh, it lasts a short amount of time. Uh, when you're not attacking, when you're building meter, it decreases. So you need to target focus or timeout AOEs right to keep it built up. And this is the one of the biggest ways that timing affects your battles because you staggering is the difference between like a 20 second encounter and a minute long encounter. Right. And it becomes more important later, too, with the different the different paradigm roles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the the way the the meter builds up or drains changes by what kind of class is doing what attacks and whatnot. Yeah, Stagger is like basically uh, what makes Final Fantasy 13 
battles like really good for me. It's like the cornerstone of how fun this game is. Uh, it cuts to a new scene, the introduction to Nora, and Nora is a neighborhood watch group that was based in the town of Bodem, where that foul sea awakened. Note in the data log, they are funded by a seaside cafe in town, which is kind of like Avalanche from Final Fantasy VII, very like this small innocuous business, local business, actually funds a special group, a rebellion yeah. group. Yeah, I mean, they're... They're just trying to, you know, fight enemies. They're a rambunctious group of kids. They're not like, you know, Avalanche was a was a terrorist, an eco terrorist organization. So it's not that severe. But like, they'll say later that the the Sanctum, you know, the Guardian Corps, like, yeah, we're aware of those punks. We we shouldn't let them go around and kill things with weapons. Yeah, it explicitly says like later on in the data log, uh, they basically let them be because they're just. Anytime there's a monster nearby, they take care of it, and they only occasionally reprimand them just so there's paperwork that they did something about it. <laughs> yeah. I want to see this sitcom of, like, Nora before the Purge. I, I don't. Oh, pretty- <laughs> I, I definitely don't. Everyone in Nora is actively terrible. Okay, I should say, I want to see, like, one episode of this sitcom. I don't want it to actually be a show. Okay, there we go. Yeah. But anyway... They're like they're in full revote against Sanctum soldiers. Uh, Snow, the leader, is introduced along with the other Nora members, which consists of Godot, who's basically a wannabe Waka from Final Fantasy X, Lebro, who's like the girl who is just quote unquote one of the guys, McKee, who's like a mechanic and comic relief kid, and Yuge, which is like a, he's very fashionable. He has that like really over the top Namur look to him, just long blue hair strong blue hair yeah like the very into fashion thing like that's a data log thing it just yeah he, he never as far as i know he never mentions clothing so like, like he says he's as much into fashion as like everyone else on this team like okay it should be said that like i like snow's design mm-hmm. but his friends are a little bit too namurin for me you know yeah i mean godot godot goes through like mountains and mountains of pomade to get that <laughs> up that straight. Yuji is a huge nightmare. It, it does not, that design is very not good. Luckily, they all die. Wait, no, they don't. <laughs> but anyway. They, pl- they plot Nora, die. They're gone and don't come back until the end. Nora stands for No Obligations, Rules, or Authority. That's real cool, guys. <laughs> yeah. Hardcore, guys. Yeah. Nor- Nora's, ugh. Like, I, I hate that. I, <laughs> I hate that a lot, actually. Yeah, there, there's a lot about it. I, I mean, I don't think these characters are really sketched out very well at all. And on top of that, like they, they, they're just, they're just goofy in a way that isn't funny or endearing. Yeah. It's pretty weird. Like what if they weren't there? What if yeah. snow was just a guy who stepped up for a minute? And oh, we didn't have all of that. <laughs> oh, that was be about to say, like, are you, are you implying that they're imaginary in snow's mind? Oh no. I was like, <laughs> that worked. You know what? Let's go I like that. that. <laughs> I'm just proposing an alternate video game where they don't exist and you lose nothing. Right. Yeah, that's true. Right. Like um when they when they're introduced McKee is like they're getting shot at by Sanctum soldiers and McKee's like, "Oh man, I am I just can't wait for break." 
It's like, kid, you're getting shot at. Yeah, they're very blasé about going full-on partisan rebellion. <laughs> what are they on? <laughs> it's it just what? it's tonally very weird. Yeah, everything about them is just tonally weird. Yep, yeah. agreed. All right, so but this is the introduction of one of our main player characters, Snow, and he's a blonde California bro-looking guy. He wears a black bandana like he's Brett Michaels and wears a trench coat. And he has this little stubble on his chin that I hate. <laughs> it looks really goofy. Uh, it's just, uh, dude, like, you, you know that that guy, like, tried to date your younger sister, and you're like, dude, get out of here, you're too old. Also, his name is Snow. Also, his name is Snow, which doesn't make any sense. Well, well it it's sense. a Nomura thing, naming uh, characters after weather patterns. Yeah, lightning I and cloud and, and squall. Dude, Cold Front is my favorite character. Yeah, he's eventually going to run out of names for that, so he's going to have to, like, dig into, like, I don't know, quicksand. Cumulus clouds? Anyway. Overcast. <laughs> Overcast. So he, he likes to talk a lot about heroes and being a hero. It, it's kind of his thing. But one of the lines he says here is, real, real heroes don't need plans. Uh, he, he's just not a character who thinks too hard about what's in front of him. He seems to op- oversimplify the challenges ahead and has blind optimism in his actions. I've read that uh, some people interpret this as sort of an, an inversion of the typical Final Fantasy hero trope. You know, he's he's got all this this positivity, and he, he thinks everyone's going to pull through, and then things go horribly. Yeah, like I think that was very intentional. Like I, I I don't I don't think it's a possibility. I think that's exactly what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be like uh, a subversion of that classic shonen anime trope of like a guy just being, oh, I'm stupid. I'm just going to give it my all, and I'll save the day. Yeah, he's, it's meant to be a deconstruction of that. He's very clueless. Like there are definitely times where he just kind of goes, "Well, I'm not noticing that thing you're doing," <laughs> and just does whatever he wants. You know, people like punching him in the face, which is which is fun. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of punching, his weapon is his fists. He punches things. His weapon is technically uh, an amp tech infused trench coat. So like he's got this big tan coat, and the weapon types are like shown as brands on the back of the coat, but I think the actual amp tech part of it is there's a device strapped to his left arm. I'll believe it. Yeah, so I mean, he punches things real hard and they break. <laughs> you know, every time I see the word amp now, I'm thinking about how it stands for antimatter principle and how that doesn't make any sense in the context it's being talked about. Antimatter manipulation principle. Oh, there we go. <laughs> it's even more clunky, but anyway, it's just, you know, hand wave magic science stuff. Yep. Well, besides a, a regular attack... That's all I need. Yeah, exactly. Uh, besides a regular attack, he has a secondary skill called Hand Grenade, which is an AoE attack uh, that knocks the enemies to the ground. And this is the first time it really highlights the interruption nature of the battle, because then the guys have to get up and then take their turn, so you have time to get more actions in while while they do that. This This attack right now is incredibly strong, and unless there's only one guy, you basically want to do nothing but throw hand grenades. I mean, yeah, your option is punching people or throwing grenades, so throw grenades. does have a pretty good punch sound. There's a lot of good sound in this game. The punch sound is good, too. Yeah, it is. Yeah. A lot of Snow's goodwill comes from his voice actor, Troy Baker. Like, that's why I think, like, if it was anyone else, I wouldn't like him as much. And I don't really like him a lot, but it would be worse if it wasn't Troy Baker. Yeah, I mean, he's he's the voice of Kanji, and Kanji is best boy, so what can you say? Yeah. Him yeah. And he was a lot angrier as Kanji. <laughs> Kanji. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. A very different character. 
Yeah, he's a very different character. Uh, this character, though, uh, Snow definitely, uh, at this point, recruits a bunch of volunteers to go fight the military. Uh, a bunch of people that were just handcuffed like 10 minutes ago. A mother volunteers saying moms are tough, and Snow offers her child, who we don't know but we found out shortly, is named Hope, a gun. But Hope chickens out, and uh, another child uh, named Vanil takes the gun, and this is our narrator. And at this point, the narration kicks in, and she says her first impression of Snow is that he is, quote, all talk. She's on the level. She knows what's up. <laughs> She's also very squeaky. She's a squeaky character. Yeah. We've talked with other, I've talked with other people who seem to really like Vanille, and I don't know if her her voice in the Japanese is more tolerable or just not as, not as, as pitchy as this. I think with Vanille, the voice actor was like told to like deliberately emulate the Japanese voice acting. And like, that includes all like the grunts yeah, and yeah. sounds she makes. I think it was called a Genki voice. I think is the term. Yeah. Lebro channel snow when she says that heroes don't run from fights and then snow and friends fight the behemoth that we saw uh, taken out a bunch of dudes earlier. After we take care of the behemoth, the uh, battle with Sanctum goes very badly. They uh, basically blow up the bridge and tons of people spill off of it. And most of the people on there die, including Hope's mother. Hope sees this. Vanille slaps him in the face, but I don't remember why. Oh, it's because he's he's stunned. Yeah. He oh, was yeah. Petrified. Okay, that's weird. So Snow is holding Hope's mother very dramatically off of the edge of this falling bridge, and she tells Snow to look after look after her kid, but doesn't tell him what the name is. Hope's mother falls to her death, and then Hope is sad and doesn't snap out of it in three seconds. So then Vanille slaps him, and that entire yep. series of events. All of it is very mysterious. Oh, and, you, and, you, and you skip the part where his mother shoots, like, one of the war mechs or something with, with an RPG. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's, for a minute there, she's a really cool, like, rocket launcher mom. Rocket mom. But then, like, she dies. I think in the Japanese, she says, she doesn't say moms are tough. She says something more like, well, she says that, but she says in a way that's, like, meant to be, like, mocked. It's supposed to be uh, something that comes back to bite her. Oh, like like a hubris thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, aren't moms tough? And the answer to that is, I guess, no, because she gets killed. Well, as everyone is uh, pouring off of this bridge that is falling into the the abyss, uh, we cut back to Saz and Lightning having a nice ride on this automated barge thing. And during this conversation, Lightning tells Saz that the purge was a. Uh, Basically, they had no intention of taking them to Pulse, and they were just going to execute everybody and pretending it was a banishment for the benefit of the public at large. Once again, it's like a, it's a little fact that like is really interesting, but because of, I mean, personally, when it when I was explaining this for the first time, I didn't really get it, or I didn't really have an emotional connection to that plot twist because I didn't really understand the purge yet. That's a problem. There's a lot of name drum, a lot of name drops in this cutscene, like Purge, Psycom, Sanctum, Guardian Core. Yeah, there's a lot of terms that don't get uh, explained well, or at least they'll get doled out little bits at a time. Yeah, I, my confusion with the Purge was I didn't see any proof that the Purge was just a massacre. It's said by the characters, and later the data log backs it up, like a chapter or two later. But there's no point where you go, "Oh, it was clearly obvious." 
you think that the reaction to the purge, the the, the insurgency is like people are scared and they think they're going to die or they think going to Pulse is basically death and so they fight back. Like I, I, don't, I don't think they quite set up well enough that the purge equals like a Holocaust level extinction kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that would have been like a lot better. Okay, what would have yeah. been a lot better is that this whole thing just from the Sanctum perspective is incredibly poorly planned, right? Like if we're just going to execute all these people... They're not chained down, so after we shoot the first person in the train, what happens now is going to happen. Like, why does the train go all the way out here? Why don't we just take off the tracks, dump the train off the bridge? Why do we even put them on a train for more than five minutes before we just go through and double tap them all? Well, I guess it could be, like, hand-waved. Like, maybe it's better to, like, start the massacre out in, you know, the hanging edge because, I don't know. Less cleanup. All I'm saying is that it's definitely some some plot convenience because I would definitely chain down some people that I was going to double tap while they were seated. Yeah, like I, I would totally believe that the sanctum would have thought it just simpler just to murder an entire town of people, but you know, yeah, it just doesn't seem like they went about it in, a, in an effective way. Or, it, or like I could believe that maybe the rumor is that they're going to all be murdered when really they are. We're we're just going to get shipped to Pulse, and it's just like people freaked out and decided to fight. Yeah. Anyway, Lightning and Zaz, they fight a robot called the Myrmidon, and this is really the first battle that I needed to use potions on. Sager was also a big Mm -hmm. part of this battle. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, just a little mini-boss. Moving on, a giant statue-like thing called the Pulse Vestige, where the Falci Anima lives, is flown in. We get our first Sarah... I think it's from Snow. You'll hear a lot of that. Yeah, you'll hear a lot of Sarah. Yeah, the yeah. Pulse Vestige is like, it's like this really monolithic, weird piece of land. It's almost like a floating continent, a floating piece of like rock. But it's where the Falci Anima lives, and the Falci Anima is a Pulse Falci? Yeah, I think it's supposed to be a building, right? Because we get a, we get some data log points about how when they broke Cocoon in the war... The cocoon fallacy basically took a bunch of just like buildings and scrap from Pulse and tried to paint like paper mache over cocoon. And mm-hmm. this is just a piece of that. It's like an entire building. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not only an entire building, but it, it looks like an enormous, like creepy Christ the Redeemer statue. Yeah, it does. <laughs> it does. It looks no good. You know, and when you when you see scenes later, like before any of this happens, where it's just sitting there in Bodom and it's just sticking out of the ground, you're like, "Man, that looks real creepy and scary." <laughs> that makes it extra funny that it's a building. Like, imagine just going down the street now, renting today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, like I kind of believe it because if a like a fallacy, they're not people. So if they're gonna have buildings, they're not gonna look like our buildings. They're gonna be chunks of earth. Oh, sure. But, like, you can the, see, like, yeah. a face and stuff on the... Like, you'd think a Falci would recognize another Falci, especially, like, the enemy Falci. Yeah. It's, it's a little weird. All right. So, what happens? Lightning jumps off a platform onto another, and she uses that landing grav net to break her fall. Zaz basically falls off the platform and lands within that, like, grav net with an like, incredible aim. Uh, Zaz, he's like a, as you said, a bumbler, but he's also a voice of reason. He's compassionate, so he's a good mix of characteristics. You know, he's not just like an idiot or a clumsy boy. He's smart and he cares. 
Yeah, and he's got a bit of that "I'm too old for this shit," you know, sort of attitude. Yeah. And he he almost goes like Infowars skeptic when he talks about the sanctum later. He's like, he's just a very like skeptical, world weary person. Very cynical at times. Yeah, cynical. Yeah, like I think I remember reading that he uh, his character was inspired by a lot of like old buddy cop films. Like his uh, his character was inspired by I think Eddie Murphy from Beverly Hills Cop, what? or maybe uh, I would say more Danny Glover. Maybe not Danny Glover one. from from yeah, uh, Danny Glover from Lethal sorry, Weapon. Danny Glover from yeah, because that, that is the that's yeah. where that quote comes from. That I'm too old for this shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly the impression I got. It's just, I just the rest of his character arc makes that point incredibly funny when you say Beverly Hills Cop. (laughs) (laughs) I've never actually seen that film, but anyway. Hope wants to talk to Snow about something, but he's too chicken shit. Vanille keeps pushing him forward. It's not really clear why Vanille is so interested in Hope's situation to put herself in danger. Like, I guess she's trying to be, like, caring and, you know helpful but it just it's weird that's okay i still don't have character motivation for vanille six chapters in so don't worry about it vanille trying to comfort and encourage hope along this chapter is the eeriest nonsense she even encourages him to, uh, encourages him to fly towards a fallacy something that everyone agrees is a very dangerous entity i'll get on a hover bike towards this robot god from another planet but definitely don't want to talk to that guy yeah, it's it's a little strange and even yeah, even when they sort of play out the motivation, it just it doesn't feel weird cuz like, you know, I got this kid and this total stranger is like pushing him to do all this stuff. Uh Snow finds uh Godot and the, Nora and the the other survivors uh and they're still alive. Yeah, like that it's kind of weird. Okay, like the mother told them to take care of her son, but she doesn't know he doesn't know who that son is. He wasn't given a name. And at that cutscene, Godot acts really weird towards Snow. He's not behaving like someone that just survived a huge massacre. I'm not sure what the writers were going for, really. Yeah, because Godot, like, instead of handing him a rifle, he points it at him. Like, if he's, like, you know, turning on him or is probably going to take him to task for getting so many people killed. And then he just kind of goes, no, nope, just kidding. That's well, so weird. You <laughs> forgot that they have no obligations, rules, or authorities. Uh, so nothing yeah, they they have no obligations to all those people. Don't worry about it. <laughs> exactly. Again, again, what are they yep. on? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's supposed to be like a dramatic twist, but it's just a ugh, it doesn't do it. It just seems weird. But um, at this point, their their player finds uh, their first weapon for snow. The thing about weapons, they're the really the primary means of build specialization. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll get into the the leveling system, but really the only way to significant you know make a significantly different character is to pick a different weapon that emphasizes different strength, magic over strength. Yeah, just magic over yeah. strength, um, or has like a and like other a, characteristics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are there are passive passive skills and and whatnot that that goes into that too. Yeah, I wish there are more combinations, right? Because there's the thing yeah. where you can have. These two gear that each have this passive skill, when they're equipped together on the same character, yield another third passive skill. And I wish there was more of that. I wish it was easier to to track those down once you figure out those combinations, because otherwise you're just fiddling with the menu a lot. Yeah, the equipment in this game is, it's pretty troublesome, because like it, it can be so very effective, but it's hard to tell like how to progress towards a build. 
mm-hmm. so to speak. Or like because you can level up weapons, you'll pick up a new one and think, oh, is this one going to be good if I, you know, if I upgrade it to the same level as the one I'm using? Now nah, I'll just keep the one. Like you get locked in with resources to the weapon that you happen to to invest in the first time. I definitely locked into a single weapon as hard as possible immediately and no regrets. Right. I mean, like I, I, I changed my weapon for this. I think this is the weapon that gives snow more strength than magic. Yeah. And I just said, Oh, yeah, well, because you don't have any magic right now. Even when you do, his his primary skills are, are physical. Although, yeah there, yeah, there are bits about that where even if you have a you're you're a magic class, you know, you're a ravager or something, and you have high strength, like they have attacks that are strength and element, magic elemental, but mm-hmm. whatever. We'll we'll get into a lot of that later. Yeah. Um. So, Snow and Godot grab a couple of hover bikes and return to where the rest of the survivors are. Uh, Yuge and McQuee do this stupid catchphrase thing where the army's no match for Nora. And then they get slapped in the back of the head. Yeah, like, LeVro doesn't like that, but she's totally okay with everyone else, like, acting like an idiot in every other kind of fashion. It's because LeBro knows that the army was, in fact, a match for Nora and all of their sick <laughs> friends. Well, no, they're all, they're all alive. Yeah, but they should be traumatized by the amount of death they've seen at this point. Like, they're, they're teenagers. <laughs> Like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, no, Nora, bad. Uh, Hope and Vanille also show up to greet them. Uh, Vanille tries to get Snow's attention. Hope chickens out again. And Snow takes one of the bikes up towards the vestige. Vanille convinces Hope to grab the other bike and ride it up there to follow Snow towards Anima. She asks, like, hey, can you can you drive this? And he says, yeah, yeah, I think I can. And it's like, Sure, okay. I bet when, you can. When would this kid ever have a chance to drive a hover bike? He's like 14. Well, you know, it, it's a dirt bike of Cocoon. Dirt bike you know, of space. Kids his age are just on them all the time. But that is the end of chapter one. Does anybody have closing thoughts on this chapter? Uh, no, it's, uh, it's very short. We talked about it for longer than it is. <laughs> yes, that's very true. The things I like about the game haven't really started yet, other than the... The generalities, I didn't mention it because I didn't want to interrupt, but basically all of the things that people dislike about this game or what I really like about it, like it would be even Mm -hmm. better if there wasn't a save point and it was just literally in my menu because towns are functionally giant menus. So I appreciate Mm -hmm. not having to walk around to a different place to go to a different menu item. So I I, I like a lot of the ease of play concerns like that. Same thing with the giant hallway, right? Like, if your, your open right. world is still basically a giant hallway in terms of plot progression, I appreciate not having to waste a bunch of time wandering across it and just go straight down the hall. I mean, the linearity of it was done on purpose, in part because they ran out of time and money, but also, I believe uh, it was Toriyama who said they, they wanted it to be very linear because they wanted people to be able to get through the story, especially people who aren't new to games. And I think part of that really stripped down simplification of the game leads to that yeah and and also yeah. they, they they also quoted that like call of duty was a was an influence to some of the design choices so and call of duty is just a tunnel with you know you shoot down guns yeah a tunnel with guns me i like it as an introductory stage i just wish it was a little bit more like it wasn't so long i think there's a lot of repetition mm-hmm. and that's a problem I can imagine a lot of people getting bored of it. Yeah, like most of the right. game, it could stand to be 30% shorter. Well, this would be where we read our listener mail, if we had any. 
but we don't because it's the first episode and uh, we're going to be recording these at two at a time. So we won't be able to read your email in time for next episode either. So if you have any thoughts about chapters one through six, might have to revisit that through six part based on the length of this episode. Or if you just have <laughs> feedback about this episode, uh, get in touch with us. You can do that by emailing us via contact at lightningstrikesthrice.com or use our contact form on the website, lightningstrikesthrice.com. And uh, we are also on Twitter. Uh, the Twitter is at lightxthrice. And we also have a Facebook page that is facebook.com slash lightxthrice. For personal plugs, you can see my work at chrisTaylor.zone if I have gotten around to doing anything with that yet. Or listen to my other podcast, uh, Magmar Sucks. Do you guys have anything you want to plug with the listeners? Uh, yes. Uh, I was a recent guest on the Doctor Who podcast, Alex and Rachel vs. the Hooniverse. Uh, the episode is called The Great Scottish Werewolf Drinking Game, and we cover uh, the episode Tooth and Claw from the second season of, of New Who. That was a lot of fun. That is a title for an episode for sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's a lot of... That sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, it's, it's, it's a good podcast. I suggest everyone listen to it. Uh, I got into Doctor Who because of the podcast, and I'm having a good time. I'm also going to be on an episode of the Dark Souls podcast, Don't Give Up Skeleton, with noted worst Jeremy Greer. We're recording that in a couple of days, but it probably won't release for another couple of two to four months because the way he tends to record it batches and release over time. But that's all for me. If you want to contact me directly for any reason, uh, email Matt at lightningstrikesthrice.com. All right, yeah. Uh, not much for me, but like I am currently doing a Let's Play of a Final Fantasy VII hack that makes the game a lot more challenging and interesting. It's called New Threat, the hack. Is that part of the reunion thing that I saw floating around? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, at Sorry. least I don't think so. Anyway, uh, it's uh, a very interesting game hack, and it's been a lot of fun so far. It's been a great show. I'm really proud of it because I, I've been really putting a lot of effort into it, and a lot of people are loving it. What's the uh, address for that? Uh, YouTube? I will definitely put it in the episode description. Yeah, okay, thank you. Anything else? Nope. That's it. All right, well... You've been listening to Lightning Strikes Thrice, a Pitch Drop podcast. Check out pitchdrop.net for more of this and other shows, and we will see you next time. Goodbye. Good night. <laughs>